For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we've got this series. We've, been, we've spent three weeks on this topic, Finding Peace. We talked first week, we dedicated a whole week to anxiety and what research has found uh, will help us with our anxiety. And then last week and this week, we've been studying the science of happiness. Um, last week, we kind of talked about what is the science of happiness. I told you I was pulling a lot of my insights from Dr. Laurie Santos, Yale professor, teaches a class on this subject, also has a podcast on this subject, um, which I highly recommend you guys checking out. Last week, we saw that science can tell us a lot of things about happiness. We've been citing uh, Dr. Sonia Lyubomirsky from UC Riverside. She points out your choices and actions can improve your happiness. That there's a certain part of our happiness we really don't have control over. She thinks about 50% of your, ha- of, of your happiness is really predetermined by your genetics. 10% is what happens to you, your circumstances. But then 40% is what you do with what happens to you, what you do with the hand you've been dealt. And we can have a tremendous impact on the happiness and peace that we can experience. Happiness will have positive effects in every area of your life. And it doesn't come easy. That even people that know the things they need to do for happiness, that it still takes work. It still takes consistency. There's no magic, do this once and you'll be happy. There, there, it's, it's a, there are disciplines here that need to be taken to get happiness. This week, I'm going to spend the first half to two-thirds of our lecture on this topic right here, our need for social relationships and their effect on our happiness and what uh, research is showing in this area. And then the rest of the time, I'll just talk about a few things that we can do on our own, the things that are done apart from our social relationships. So let's take a look here. Jonathan Haidt, NYU, professor of social psychology, his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. Here's what he says about our need for social relationships. He says, if you want to predict how happy someone is or how long she will live, assuming you can't ask about her genes or personality, you should find out about her social relationships. Having strong social relationships strengthens the immune system. Whoa. It extends your life more than does quitting smoking. It speeds your recovery from surgery. It reduces the risks of depression and anxiety disorders. He says it's not just that extroverts are naturally happier and healthier. This is not just something that where extroverts have the market cornered on happiness. When introverts are forced to be more outgoing, (laughs) they usually enjoy it and find that it boosts their mood. We'll be talking to you a few times tonight, introverts. Even people who think they don't want a lot of social contact still benefit from it just by trying and getting out there. And it's not just that, as the song says, we all need somebody to lean on. Recent work on giving support shows that caring for others is often more beneficial than is receiving help. Uh, Boy, there's way way too many studies for me to cite here tonight. Um, We need to interact and intertwine with others. We need the give and the take. We need to belong. Social connections and happiness. Santos has a lengthy interview with Dr. Nick Epley from the University of Chicago. He's a professor of behavioral science. And... um, He had this study he and another colleague released in 2014 called Mistakenly Seeking Solitude. 
that uh, she interviews him about in episode four of her Happiness Lab podcast. And Santos, she says, the sheer amount of time we spend around other people actually predicts how happy we are. Take one famous study by positive psychologists Ed Diener and Marty Sullivan. They looked at people who scored in the highest 10th percentile on happiness surveys and then tried to figure out what makes them so much happier than the rest of us. They're like, they don't exercise more. They don't do more religious stuff. What is it? What do they do so differently? They were more social. They spent more time around other humans than people with average levels of happiness. Yeah, it's humans that we're talking about here when we talk about social relating, not just like your dog or whatever. It's, it's, these, are, these are human relationships. Um, and I'm not against dogs. The, uh, the results were so strong that these researchers deemed being around other people as a necessary condition for very high happiness. That's a pretty strong statement from two top researchers. Here's another study by Nobel Prize winning psychologist Danny Kahneman. He confirmed this as well. He and his colleagues tested which daily activities make us feel best. And what did they find? I bet you can guess. Socializing with others. That makes us feel better than all the other ones they tested, including eating, shopping, relaxing, or even watching TV. Just being with other people makes us feel good, even if those people are strangers. And then Epley, he says, happiness isn't about the intensity of experiences that we have. It's about the frequency of them. Happiness is like a leaky tire on your car. You don't have a nice conversation with somebody and then you're happy forever. But if you're having a nice conversation with somebody on a plane, that plane ride is more enjoyable than it would have been otherwise. But then, once you're off the plane ride, you know, your tire goes flat a little bit and you've got to do something else to pump it back up. And so I find a lot of these conversations are like air compressors for my tires. Very interesting analogy he gives here that happiness is something that needs to be constantly maintained. People get the consequences of social interaction wrong, particularly with strangers. Not engaging with somebody else in conversation gives you a cost somewhere else. People don't always seem to recognize that. Santos points out, it turns out the cost of not being social not taking enough time to connect with other people is that it makes us feel pretty awful. Loneliness is now a growing epidemic. Around the world, people today report feeling lonely at double the rate they did in the 1980s. Take college campuses like where I work at Yale. Nationally in the U.S. right now, over 60% of college students report feeling very lonely most of the time. Maybe that's how you would describe yourself. That's how I described myself at one point in my life. Very lonely. Higher than any other previous generation. Recent research shows that the physical consequences of our increased loneliness are staggering. Feeling isolated is said to be as bad for health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. If loneliness had a health warning, it would sound like this. It may cause increased risk of inflammation, disrupted sleep, abnormal immune responses, depression, anxiety, higher stress levels, early cognitive decline, alcoholism, cardiovascular disease, stroke, <gasps> Alzheimer's, diabetes, suicide, and even early death. Depressing. Epley's um, mistakenly seeking solitude study, it was a study on the Chicago subway. It was where it originated. 
you know, he would ride the subway to work every day and he would just look around at all these people being extremely antisocial. And he said people would sit, get on and sit down next to their neighbors, perfectly decent, lovely people going into Chicago to work for the day. They'd sit down cheek to jowl next to somebody else and then they would ignore each other for 45 minutes. Almost nobody ever talks on the train. The question is, why? Why is that? Is it because that's going to make us happier? Nick decided to test this, Santos says. He recruited passengers sharing his commute to work. He divided them into three different groups or conditions, as researchers call them. He asked each group to act in a certain way while they were on the train. Nick says, for one condition, we told them just to keep to themselves. Just focus on the day ahead. Don't engage others around you in conversation this morning. The second condition, we asked them to do whatever they normally do, which is typically the same as what happens in the solitude condition, because almost nobody talks to strangers on the train. Then, in the third condition, we asked them to do something radical. We asked them to try to make a connection with the person who sits down next to you this morning on the train. Try to get to know something about him or her. So they were going to have a conversation. (laughs) Santos jumps in. She says, think about these different groups for a second. Which one would you be happiest in? What do you think? The quiet one, the do what you normally do, or the try to talk to somebody condition? You might naturally have a pretty strong intuition here, but I bet that intuition is wrong. I bet I know what you guessed, most of you, and I bet it's wrong, is what she says. Nick says, people actually reported the most positive commute in the connection condition, the people that tried to talk to somebody. The control condition was less positive, and the least positive was the solitude condition, where people kept to themselves. Being forced to talk with a stranger was far and away the most pleasurable experience, she says. Simply making a connection with someone, even someone we don't know, makes us feel really good. Nick has now done this very same study in a number of different contexts, on city buses, on cabs at the airport, and waiting rooms. They all find the same result. People are happiest when they're being social with someone. But what about the other person? What about the victim here? person you're talking to. Nick says, you could imagine we were potentially spreading misery, (laughs) that the person who was talked to maybe was unhappy about this. We were like polluting the train with all of this unwanted conversation. (laughs) So does your conversation make other people miserable, she asks? Well, Nick tested that too by creating a fake waiting room in his laboratory. And he says, they were also happier than when they were not talked to. And that effect was just as big on the people who were instructed to talk. So I don't think we're spreading misery on the trains or buses by going around talking to people. Connecting with someone is pleasant, whether you're the one who's initiating or the one receiving it. And she qualifies. He's not advocating harassing someone on the train or continuing to try to talk to someone who clearly doesn't want you to speak to them. All Nick's saying is that a quick conversation can make us feel good. The problem is that's not what we think is going to happen. In fact, they asked people ahead of time, if you keep to yourself, 
or, you know, do what you normally do or try to talk to somebody, will you be more, will you be more or less happy? The people who thought, keep to myself, they thought they'd be the happiest. The people who thought, talk to somebody, they thought they'd be the least happiest. And he sa she says, when Nick asked people to imagine how they'd feel getting into a conversation with a stranger, they wrongly predicted it wouldn't be fun or uplifting. They actually guessed the opposite. And he says, the reason that's interesting is because our expectations guide our behavior. If you expect it's going to be freezing cold outside, you'll pick up a jacket when you go out. If you expect it's going to be really warm outside, you won't wear a jacket. And if I expect that talking to somebody will be pleasant, I'll do it. And if I expect it'll be miserable, I don't. She says, I bet you're thinking, what if you're shy around people? I bet all this talking to people stuff works if you're really outgoing, but maybe it sucks for introverts. Nick says, we did measure this and we found actually no difference at all between introverts and extroverts across these conditions. That is, introverts enjoyed connecting with others just as extroverts did. Introverts did not enjoy keeping to themselves in solitude, and extroverts didn't enjoy that either. What tends to vary are people's expectations about how they're going to feel. So an introvert, because they think they're not going to enjoy the party, is going to choose not to go. And by the way, thanks for coming to CT tonight. <laughs> because look at all your learning. Aren't you glad you came here around people? Whereas an extrovert who enjoys the party might choose to go. On average, though, people tend to feel happier when they're connecting with others. That's true for introverts and extroverts. Santos says, um, she tells uh, Epley, she says, I made this point on CBS Morning News recently, the one he's making right now. And she said, I got some interesting reactions from the viewers. Here's one tweet from someone who says, talk to a stranger on the bus? Are you insane? Don't talk to strangers. It's dangerous. Didn't your mama teach you anything? <laughs> Here's another one of my personal favorites. If a stranger talks to me on a bus, I will go nuts. <laughs> she says, do you get similar reactions where people hear this data and they're just like, not true, not me. And he says... I get it all the time. I get a lot of pushback on this because the expectations are so strong. Our mind is telling us one thing about what we need to do to be happy. That I need more time for me, that I need to get away from all these people. That's what's stressing me out. But, and that expectation is so strong that we can't take direct research to the contrary. He says, what people are imagining, I think, are random people who might come up to you and talk to you and they imagine sort of the worst case outcome, like homeless people or mentally ill people or something who are dangerous or psychopaths or whatever. But that's a different situation from what we're asking people to do here. We're just asking you to talk to a person who happens to be sitting next to you. And the person who happens to be sitting next to you is likely to be just a normal person, not a psychopath. And then she says, we don't do something that's almost certain to make us happier because we think we'll be a preyed upon by some imaginary psycho killer. And okay, let's imagine you talk to a psycho killer on the train. What, that's going to make them want to psycho kill you? <laughs> I mean, don't give them your address, I guess. <laughs> or your code to your lock. Uh, but no, I mean, that's... that's that's crazy. 
She concludes this episode, she circles back around and she says, you remember Nick's experiment using train passengers, how he found people he forced into conversation with their fellow commuters had happier journeys? Well, Nick called the, the, the transit authority in Chicago and he reported these findings to the head of marketing at the railroad company. And here was her response. She said, Nick, you're not going to believe what we're about to do. She said, we're going to roll out a new policy on the trains. We're going to put in place a quiet car. And the quiet car is one, she explained, where people are not allowed to engage in conversation. They're not allowed to talk on cell phones. They're not allowed to talk to somebody sitting next to them. It's supposed to be absolutely quiet. She says, Nick was surprised by the train, that the train company had made a decision that completely contradicted his well-being research. So he said, why are you doing that? And she said, well, because we asked people on a survey what they wanted, <laughs> and this is what they said they wanted, a quiet car, not to talk to anyone. Which, of course, I pointed out to her is exactly what our participants said they wanted, too. And it just turned out not quite to be right, at least in terms of their well-being, AKA wrong. Nick, then being a good scientist, wanted to know if the railroad people had ever carried out the experiment with the opposite of a quiet car. <laughs> I said, have you ever just put a chatty car on the line? <laughs> you know, where people can just get together, maybe you got some snacks or something, and you get together and you just talk, you get to know your neighbors. And she laughed and said, no, we never, we've never done the chatty car, but we used to put bar cars on the trains where people would get together and often they would then connect with each other there. And I asked her, do you still have the bar cars anymore? She said, no, we don't do them anymore. And I asked, why not? And I was imagining, you know, her telling stories about people stumbling off the trains drunk or something. But she said the real problem was with the bar car. They were too crowded. <laughs> that is... They were too popular. So there were too many people who wanted to be in there. <laughs> and that's the point, he says, at which, as a behavioral scientist, you just sort of sigh. <laughs> yeah, what we think we want and what we actually need sometimes are pretty far apart from one another. How strange that so much science is pointing toward us being social beings. And this is different from social media. Social connections are not social media connections. Jean Twangy, I've cited her before. She studies the, um, the difference between, um, well, she's studying iGen. So she's studying younger people, you know, ages, well, pretty much junior high, high school and college age people. And she studied their relative risk of being unhappy based on time spent on screen versus non-screen activities. And so anything to the right of the zero would be tendency toward unhappiness. Anything to the left of center would be tendencies toward happiness. You can see here, these are the happy activities. These are the unhappy activities in these eighth graders she studied. And if you notice, every single one of the unhappy activities TV, video chat, computer games, texting, social networking, and internet, they're all screen activities. Every single one of the happy activities, 
working, homework, in-person social interaction, reading print media, religious services, like, you know, going to home church or something, and then sports or exercise, those all involve no screen. And she says, if you were going to give advice for a happy life based on this graph, it would be straightforward. Put down the phone, turn off the computer or iPad, and do something, anything that doesn't involve a screen. Three recent studies suggest that screen time, particularly social media use, does indeed cause unhappiness. One asked college students with Facebook pages to complete short surveys on their phones over the course of two weeks. They'd get a text message with a link five times a day, and they'd report their mood and how much they'd used Facebook. The more they'd used Facebook, the unhappier they later felt. However, feeling unhappy did not lead to more Facebook use. Facebook use caused unhappiness. Another study of adults found the same thing. The more people used Facebook, the lower their mental health and life satisfaction at the next assessment. But after they interacted with friends in person, their mental health and life satisfaction improved. A third study randomly assigned 1,095 Danish adults to stop using Facebook for a week, the experimental group, or to continue to use it as normal, the control group. At the end of the week, those who'd taken a break from Facebook were happier, less lonely, and less depressed than those who had used Facebook as usual. And by fairly substantial margins, 36% fewer lonely, 33% fewer were depressed, 9% more were happy. Those who stayed off Facebook were also less likely to feel sad, angry, or worried. And because the participants were randomly assigned to conditions, that rules out the explanation that people who are already unhappy, lonely, or depressed use Facebook more. As a true experiment, it shows Facebook use causes unhappiness, loneliness, and depression. And there's different theories on this. Um, part of it is because it's, you're doing that instead of face-to-face -face interaction. Another theory is that what you're looking at in other people's lives are these carefully curated, precious moments that you then compare your life to, and you think that the happy look they have on their face there is how they feel all the time, and you think they're with friends there, that's what they are all the time, and you start looking with comparisons and envy and all kinds of stuff. What I'm taking away from this, though, is if you want happiness, you're going to need plenty of time for relationships with people. And that might require restricting your own freedom for the sake of others. We can't be free to do whatever we want and be in relationships, have the freedom that comes from enjoying relationships. Again, Jonathan Haidt, NYU, in his happiness hypothesis, he points this out. He says, an ideology of extreme personal freedom can be dangerous because it encourages people to leave homes, jobs, cities, and marriages in search of professional and personal fulfillment, thereby breaking the relationships that were probably their best hope for such fulfillment. He says, the ancient philosopher Seneca was right. No one can live happily who has regard to himself alone and transforms everything into a question of his own utility. John Donne was right. No man, woman, or child is an island. Aristophanes was right, he says. We need others to complete us. We are an ultra-social species, this NYU researcher says, after decades in his field. We are full of emotions finely tuned for loving, befriending, helping, 
sharing, and otherwise intertwining our lives with others. Yeah, if I'm going to be in a relationship with someone, that is so important. It's worth sacrificing a lot of things. I can't just say whatever I want. I can't just do whatever I want whenever I feel like doing it. I might, I might curb some of those limitations for the sake of a relationship. And you know, the Bible says the same thing. That you were created and designed for relationship by a relational God. Did you realize that? You know what the first thing is God says about humans when we open our Bibles? He says it is not good for man to be alone. Isn't that, isn't that a summation of every study we've read so far tonight? It is not good for humans to be alone. Someone said, Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? If you summed up everything God wanted from us, what would it be? And he said, well, one is love the Lord your God. The other is love your neighbor as yourself. He said, you were created for two types of relationships. One with the God of the universe and another with the other beings he's created in his image. This is at the heart of what God wants from you. This is at the heart of your design. Relationships. First John 4 He goes so far as to say this. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. What is our scientific basis for the idea of love? Chemicals released into certain parts of our brain as an evolutionary advantage? No, the Bible says that's not what love is. No, love is from God. Love is designed by God. Love love is a lot more than some chemicals squirted into a certain lobe of your brain at key times. No, love comes from God because God is love. This is at the heart of who, not just what God wants for us, but who God is. He is a relational God. He's existed in relationships since before the beginning of time. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. And he invites us into relationship with himself and with, with one another. John goes on to say, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life for him, through him. Yes, he sacrificed himself so he, he could show us how much God loved us and so we could enter into a love relationship with God. He died for you so you could finally relate to the God of the universe. That's the good news of the Bible. And that's at the heart of all this talk about relationship. It's all pointing to something more, something bigger. A deeper and eternal relationship with a capital R between you and God. And also very significant relationships with beings he's created. So what else? I said we talk about the need for relationships and then a few other things. Here's one that doesn't exactly relate to relationships. Be careful about your reference points. Be careful about your reference points. Uh, There's the silver medal effect. You ever look at silver medalists when they're standing on the podium? The science of happiness has studied the faces of silver medalists. You can always tell which one is the silver medalist. For example, we've got a gold and a silver medalist here. Which one is which? Yeah, the one on the left is the silver. Which one of these is the silver medalist? Trick question, they all are. (laughs) That's why they're so sad. 
What about these three? <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, the one on the right just lost to the one in the middle. And actually, the one on the right just lost for the first time in his life. Greco-Roman wrestling. Yeah, that guy, silver medalist. Silver medalist. Silver. Silver. Sad silver. <laughs> it's like the one time he didn't win gold. <laughs> Michael Phelps. Silver. Here's maybe the most famous one ever. Michaela Maroney, 2012 Women's Vault, the heavy favorite to win the gold. She slipped and won the silver. And she's up there. She's holding it together. She's holding it together. And then she makes the famous Michaela Maroney face, which was, of course, captured on film and then instantly photoshopped into great moments in human history, like the landing on the moon, <laughs> royal weddings, not impressed, Muhammad Ali. She's not impressed. Sistine Chapel, whatever, King Kong, double rainbow, Brady Bunch, Chuck Norris, not impressed. <laughs> yeah. First person to study this, Victoria Medvek at Northwestern. Studied uh, uh, videotaped footage of silver medalists, gold and bronze medalists at the 92 Barcelona Olympics. They had students um, rate the person's face on a scale from zero, which is pure agony, to 10, which is pure ecstasy. And what they found was this. The average bronze medalist scored a 7.1. The average silver medalist scored a 4.8. They just won the silver, and they're closer to agony than ecstasy. They're the second best person in the world at the long jump, and they're really upset about that. Why is that? This study's been repeated numerous times in different ways, including you know, computerized facial recognition technology to capture instant unguarded reactions as soon as they you know, touch the finish line. And they found just pure negative emotions on the faces of these athletes. Think about this. Here's three. You can see the silver medalist on the right, of course. The gold guy in the middle loving it. And Mr. Bronze on the right. Why do I bring this up under reference points? Well, think about it. What's this guy's reference point, the bronze medal guy? Who's he comparing himself to? Everybody who did not win the medal. He's thinking, I was this close to not even being on the stand. <laughs> on the other hand, who is sad guy's reference point? He's not comparing himself to the other 7 billion people in the world who aren't as good as, as him at the half pipe. He's comparing himself to the one guy who was .01 better than him, the gold medalist. And he's thinking, I was this close to the gold. Reference points can kind of make you lose your sense of reality. And I'd probably be doing the same thing if I, if I ever won a silver medal in anything. <laughs> but what's the point here? Oh, you know, they've studied this in other areas too, by the way. The would you rather questions. 
Would you rather be a person who makes 50K a year, but everyone else makes 25K? Or you make 100,000 a year, and everybody else makes a quarter million dollars a year? What did people pick? Most people picked option one. They'd rather make half as much as long as they're making twice as much as everybody they know. It's comparisons. It's reference points. They've studied this. They said, would you rather be very pretty, but you live kind of in a sea of fashion models, or kind of plain, but prettier than other people? (laughs) They picked plain. Would you rather be super smart or just a little bit smarter than your peers? The sad reality is, is that we would rather be poor, dumber, and uglier. <laughs> as long as we're superior to those immediately around us. That's what research in the human happiness has found. So be careful about your reference points. Here's the thing. If we use others as our reference points... For our happiness, we build our lives on a very unstable foundation. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. It gets very confusing. And the thing is, we're, we, we've been cut off. We live in a broken world, the Bible says. Where we've been cut off from God, our ultimate source of meaning. And so we begin looking around to try to find meaning against people around us. And so we think, well, I'm, I'm good at this, or I'm not so good at this, or I'm tall and that's good, or I'm tall and that's bad. And we make all these comparisons, and they're kind of arbitrary and culturally bound and based on how I'm feeling today. And even if you're the smartest, the richest, somebody's going to come along who's smarter and richer and more, more good-looking. And you are fading. You're a finite human being who's headed toward the grave. And so if we're taking our identity from comparisons with others, it's just not going to work. We need, we need to take our identity from God, Scripture says. And God makes that possible for you to be completely accepted by Him, loved by Him, safe and secure with Him. And let's not forget here, the importance of gratitude and counting your blessings when it comes to reference points. Instead of thinking about what you don't have and you don't have as much as that other person, we need to think about what we do have. And I know I've presented the science on this and I've talked about this in the previous two weeks, but it keeps coming up and so I'm going to keep bringing it up. And I also am asking, like I did last week, have you started doing this? And if not, then don't get mad at me because I keep bringing it up. (laughs) And if you did, then you're probably happy that I'm bringing it up because you're seeing the positive effects of it doesn't take that long. Here's another one that comes up in some of the literature. Taking time to process your experiences. Especially the painful. We, we tend to not want to think about the painful things or to, to kind of push them down. At least some of us do. Uh, Santos interviews Dr. James Pennebaker from the University of Texas. He's a professor of social psychology um, in episode six. And... His research, he's kind of one of the um, pioneers of a, a field of therapy called writing therapy. He interviewed 60, it started when he interviewed 60 Holocaust survivors. This is about 45 years after World War II ended. And when he interviewed them to talk about their experiences, a lot of them had never talked about it before. He hooked them up to all kinds of like 
EKGs and other scientific health measurements to see what effect is this having on their health as they talk about these painful experiences. And what happened was, the data showed immediately after telling these awful stories, survivors felt better. And survivors who shared the most traumatic memories were the ones who reported feeling the best. They had the lowest heart rates, the lowest levels of emotional anguish. Talking about the worst things they'd ever experienced made survivors feel calmer and happier. But James's results, she says, were even more amazing than that. One year after the interview, he contacted survivors and asked, how are you feeling and have you been to the doctor recently? He found survivors who disclosed lots of details in their interviews were healthier. People who evaded talking deeply about their traumas went to the doctor almost twice as often. It seemed that getting those awful secrets out in the open made survivors less sick even a full 12 months later. So he goes on to say he was kind of like really, really heartbroken by these experiences. He was like having nightmares and stuff and just hearing these World War II prison camp stories. So he started just writing out how he was feeling. And he realized, I'm feeling a lot better. And he started realizing, that's kind of what happened with my survivors I interviewed. And so he decided to test his theory. Can just kind of processing in writing or with a person, your negative experiences help. So he brought in some college freshmen. And he had them do some writing. Two groups of writers wrote four days in a row. They came into rights. Half of them wrote on mundane events. Half of them wrote about really traumatic, negative things that happened. I mean, like legitimately traumatic things. And they also agreed, you could track my medical records for six months. So what did he find? He found those in the group who wrote about traumas went to the doctor at about half the rate as people in the control conditions. It was associated with better physical health. They went to the doctor less. Their immune system got better. And he says since that time in the early 90s, there easily have been 1,000 or 2,000 studies that have been done on this subject. They've all said the same thing. It's, across these studies, it's been associated with a reduction in symptoms of depression, PTSD. It's been associated with people performing better on creative tests, doing better on standardized tests like SATs or MCATs. They're mentally healthier, healthier and the biological markers have been quite impressive in terms of changes and improvements in symptoms of arthritis, immune disorders, cardiovascular changes. And so processing through the things that happen to you, that can be pretty helpful. The science shows. Do you have close friends you can talk with? Why not open up to one of them? Why not put yourself in a position where you can start building close friendships, committing the time necessary for that? Do you take time to journal ever? I found that maybe once a week, I'm sitting down and I'm just typing out what's been happening in my life lately. And uh, I start to know what I need to do because I start to feel a little crazy. Or other people start to notice that and they point it out to me, like my wife. <laughs> but what I found is that it's just like my brain can finally relax and let go of all the stuff it's been holding on to. And what's nice is as a Christian, you can actually not just journal, but prayer journal, where you're there, but you're talking with the God that can hear your thoughts and read everything that you're writing. Would you like to be able to talk with the God who is there? He's really the one you need to process with. He is the one who's calling out to you 
wanting to talk to you. As the psalmist says, my heart has heard you say, Lord, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Yahweh, I'm coming. God is calling out to you. He wants to talk. You have a deep need to talk with someone. And he is the ultimate someone who you were designed to talk with. Well, there's reading. Reading and happiness. There's a study out of the University of Liverpool. Regular readers for pleasure reported fewer feelings of stress and depression than non-readers. Stronger feelings of relaxation from reading than from watching TV, engaging social media, or reading other leisure material, for example, celebrity beauty or style magazines. Reading creates a parallel world in which personal anxieties can recede while also helping people to realize the problems they experience are not theirs alone. A fifth of respondents said reading helped them feel less lonely. Those who read for pleasure also have higher levels of self-esteem and a greater ability to cope with difficult situations. Probably because readers have expanded models and repertoires of experience, which allow them to look with new perspective and understanding on their own lives. It helps you get outside of your own little world into other worlds. Readers find it easier to make decisions, to plan and prioritize, and this may be because they're able to recognize that difficulty and setback are unavoidable aspects of human life. That's part of what you get is the, the full human experience when you read. People who read regularly feel closer to their friends and to their community than lapsed readers or non-readers. Lapsed are readers that used to read and then stopped at a certain point, like I was for a long time. Reading not only produces greater understanding and empathy with others, it also gives a currency for sharing experience more meaningfully than is possible in ordinary social conversation. They also had a stronger and more engaged awareness of social issues and cultural diversity than non-readers. So their conclusions and recommendations are, one, readers feel happier about themselves and their lives, and two, reading for just 30 minutes a week can have all kinds of positive benefits in your life. That might be a good something to implement, add a little bit of reading. Scripture says we're not just we're not just bodies, but we're also minds, and those minds need to be stimulated. And we have the amazing ability to, to read and to visualize. It's part of the beauty of language. And finally, I can't get out of here without talking about exercise. The science of exercise, well documented. You've probably heard it. I'll just read just a couple highlights here. The importance of exercise is not adequately understood or appreciated by patients and mental health professionals alike. I, I agree. I think this is really underutilized in our search for mental health. Evidence has suggested that exercise may be an often neglected intervention in mental health care. Aerobic exercises, including jogging, swimming, cycling, walking, walking gardening, and dancing, have been proved to reduce anxiety and depression. These improvements in mood are proposed to be, purposed to be caused by exercise-induced increase in blood circulation to the brain. It starts changing your brain as you exercise in good ways. And by influence on the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. You all know what that is, right? <laughs> anyway, exercise improves mental health by reducing anxiety, depression, and negative mood, and by improving self-esteem and cognitive function. Also alleviate symptoms such as low self-esteem and social withdrawal. 30 minutes of exercise of moderate intensity, such as brisk walking is all it takes. Three days a week is sufficient for these health benefits. 
And these 30 minutes need not be continuous. Three 10-minute walks are believed to be equally useful as one 30-minute walk. I think walking is so overlooked. And it's so easy to do. When you're hanging out with somebody, just turn it into a walking hangout. If you're cold, you're going to warm up because you're walking. (laughs) If you're tired, you're going to wake up because you're walking. You're just going to be happier when when you're done if you start doing this. Usually takes a couple weeks to really start feeling the effects of this, though, but you can get a lot right away, too. Health benefits from regular exercise that should be emphasized and reinforced by every mental health professional to the patients include the following. Big, long list, blah, blah, blah. Okay. (laughs) So, in conclusion, God is a God of joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. He made a life that he intends you to enjoy to the full, and quite, quite a full life can be enjoyed even in a fallen world like we're in. But he's not going to force this on you. He's also not going to give you a little pill you can swallow that's going to make you happy for the rest of your life. No, he, he respects your free will, and also it's going to take some time to get to happiness. Instead, he offers, first of all, a relationship. That is the starting point for eternal happiness that God offers. And once you're in a relationship with him, then you have the guidance. He wants to guide you down the path of fulfillment. And you won't experience it every second of every day. And as you go on walking with God, you, but you can experience deeper joy, more joy, lasting joy. And then you will reach a point where... You will step into heaven, and that will be fullness of joy forever. Yes, Lord, thanks that you've revealed quite a bit to us here, and that you've given us minds that can investigate and research and draw conclusions, and that that is part of being made in your image, that intellect, that ability to communicate. Um, Thank you that you've given us the gift of relationships. Thanks that you came up with love, and you gave us the ability to love God. And I pray that we can find our fulfillment as we, as we come into a love relationship with you, Lord, and also enter into relationships with beings you've created in your image, God. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.